Um, Luke 4 is where I am, if you want to turn to it in your Bibles. Let me read from verse 31. Speaking about Jesus, Luke writes, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them, and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they, fa- they came to where he was, he tried to, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So that last phrase of what Jesus, that statement of what Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. He's disturbed in the early morning. He's trying to find a quiet corner. But they don't want him to leave. And his reply is, I've got to keep preaching the gospel. I've got to keep doing it. Well, all this follows, and this is important for us to to know. The stories in the New Testament, indeed in the Old Testament, aren't just individual stories that you can take out and use as you want and then put back wherever you want to put them back. They follow a flow. It's important we notice the flow of the uh, Luke's Gospel. This follows Jesus' baptism, which comes in chapter 3, verse 21, when Jesus is baptized and filled with the Spirit. It follows this, what we're about to look at in chapter 4. You can't ignore that. It's important. One of the things that needs to happen to us is we need to be born again, symbolized by baptism, and we need to be filled with the Spirit. All that happens in the Gospels assumes a filling of the Spirit. You can't get away without that. So what's going to happen is a result of that. And then you, be, then you have a confrontation with the enemy in the wilderness, this um, temptation of Jesus as it's announced in, John, in, in Luke chapter 4. Well, he has this confrontation and he comes out triumphant in the power of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit into the desert in verse 1. And then in verse 14 he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then announces his manifesto, which is to confront the powers that be and bring deliverance. That's the big thing. It's going to bring deliverance for people. 
If we just needed a teacher, Jesus would have been a teacher, wouldn't he? If all we needed was more education, a bit more information, that's what he would have been. But he came as deliverer, to rescue us, to set us free. So Luke, interestingly, having sort of started Jesus' ministry with the baptism and going on to his temptation and then this sort of confrontation in Nazareth, which is to remind the people that the message is not just for Jews, but for Gentiles too. The next thing is going to happen is not a healing or another miracle. It's going to be a demonstration, a description of the power of the word of God that comes in verse 31 and 32. Now we understand the power of a holy life, without which what we say really makes no difference. Anyone can say anything. We are overwhelmed by words, aren't we? Anyone who gets a Sunday paper, I don't, because it would take me a month to read it, so I don't get them. But there's huge volume of words, isn't there? Written words, spoken words, all over the place. We're not just talking about more volume. We're talking about the power of a holy life but the spoken word of God. And you have to remember that when Jesus speaks, he's speaking out of a holy life. He's speaking out of a life of one who is completely submitted to his Father. That's what baptism is all about. He says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. That's why the Father says, you are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Because the Son is saying, whatever you want, Father, is what I want. He's completely submitted to his father. That's very important because that's where his power lies. Completely submitted to his father. And further we understand that the story of the gospel is one of a clash of kingdoms. A confrontation between God and his arch enemy, which we've already seen. The apostle John reminds us in his one of his letters that the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. Let's not mess about, ladies and gentlemen. It was not to tinker at the edges. It was to destroy the devil's work. But Jesus comes to deliver. That was 1 John 3, verse 8. And Paul says this happened on the cross. When he writes to the Colossians, he says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, which include, of course, the devil, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So it's all going to happen as a crucial climax which we've just been celebrating over Easter at the cross. But even before that in his ministry Jesus is going to undo the works of the devil and set people free. So here's the first point for you this morning. The word of God can set us free in our minds. The word of God can set us free in our minds. He goes to Capernaum on the Sabbath, he teaches the people and their response is to be amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. It's different from what they're used to. In Jesus' day, rabbis commonly quoted one another. In fact, they were very cautious about saying anything new. Some of them even boasted that nothing they said had not already been taught them by another rabbi. But that was not Jesus' way. He came in his own authority, that is to say, the authority of the deity. But in order to set people free. 
So the issue is not just being impressed by the word of God, but how is the word of God affecting me? Now as a preacher or a student of the word of God, I have to get a grip of the word of God. But first of all, the word of God has to get a grip of me. If that doesn't happen, then I'll never get a grip of the word of God. What am I going to do with it? And the teaching of Jesus was intended to make his people think. Those who have ears to hear, he would say on more than one occasion, let them hear. He's meant to make us think. Now, our minds might be blank sheets of paper, as it were, when we're born, and if you're like me, frequently after that, struggling to find the words. But we are soon affected by what we hear, see, experience in life. But when the word of God comes into our lives, we discover that we've got a lot of unlearning to do. You can't just take the word of God and absorb it and add it to what you already know. Because the word of God confronts what you already know. Basically, we live in a society that says, we are the centre of the universe. Or more precisely, I am the centre of the universe. And the word of God comes in and says, no, you're not, Charles. God is the centre of everything. So you have to unlearn that fact and readdress everything and realign your life in a proper way. Some people pay very close attention to what goes into their bodies by way of eating. They're very meticulous in what they will or will not eat. Very meticulous about what they have put on their bodies in terms of lotion, what it includes and so forth. But couldn't care less about what goes in their minds. But we have to be very careful because we are more affected by our culture than I think we care to admit. I am more culturally affected than I would care to admit. And the word of God challenges those things. So Jesus is bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, but if we are going to accept it fully and be released and be set free, then I have to let it confront what I understand and let it dominate my thinking. So the word of God should challenge the way we think. Every time I hear the word of God and it affirms what I already know, praise the Lord, I've got something right. Absolutely. And we know a lot of that stuff because we've been listening to the word of God. But since I am not yet perfect, I know that the word of God is still going to continue to challenge the way I think, the way I speak. As Mark Twain once said, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it is the parts that I do understand. Because they challenge the way we think. So if we want to be set free in our minds by the word of God, we have to let it get a grip. Which is why I think funeral services are often so rich. Because funeral services often are just scripture on scripture on scripture. There's enormous comfort, strength, life, hope with the scripture. And Jesus said it's the truth that sets us free. And it may be, even this morning here, there are issues that people are wrestling with that really are a matter of a confrontation between the word of God and what I already think. 
And until we say, Lord, your word be preeminent in my life, we'll never know the freedom that the word of God can bring. When we struggle and say, no, Lord, your word, no. No, I've got my own understanding of how this is. Then we'll never be free. Here's the second. comes in verse 33 onwards. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out, identifying Jesus. Jesus sternly demands that he be quiet and comes out of the man. And then the demon threw the man down without before them all and they came out without injuring him. And everyone is amazed. Notice, nothing is done except a declaration of the word of God. Now Luke is going to follow this up with loads of instances of Jesus actually doing things in terms of healing. But he chooses to give us three instances at the beginning where he's just a proclamation of the word of God. We've got to get a hold of the power of the word of God. But there's no word higher than him. So here's the second one. The word of God can set us free from the devil's control. This is what the Apostle John writes in one of his letters. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Hebrews 2 says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he, speaking of Jesus, too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We are meant to be set free from his control. John again, in 1 John 5, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And at this stage of his ministry, very few people knew exactly who Jesus was, so far as the synoptic gospels are concerned. But the demon knows and shouts it out to everybody else, and Jesus will not have that. But without engaging in any conversation with the demon, any discussion about the difficulties here, he just declares the word of God. Remember, he's a man submitted to the authority of God, completely given over to the purposes of God, filled with the spirit of God. Therefore, he can speak with the authority of God. And the demon flees without causing any harm. Which kingdom is greater? The kingdom of the devil, the dominion of the devil, or the kingdom of God? Here in this statement, Jesus makes it unequivocally true. The kingdom of God is more powerful. And by a word simply, the demon not only does flee, but has to flee. He has no alternative. There's no discussion here. There's no struggle here. If Jesus cannot deliver us from the grip of the evil one, then what kind of saviour is he? Paul will say to the Colossians, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's rescued us. This is the good news. Because Jesus is the world's rightful king, we no longer owe any allegiance whatsoever to the devil. We are free to serve God. So the word of God can set us free in our minds as we let the word of God challenge our thinking, address the issues where we've got it wrong and God's got it right and cause us to change the way we think and realign ourselves to him. And the word of God can set us free 
from the control of the devil, from the evil one. We never, in that way then, can say, I can't help it. Well, I may not be able to, but God can. I am weak, but he is strong. I'm a great sinner, but he's a great saviour. And he can set us free. I am not merely obliged to act according to my sinful nature. I'm not. And the New Testament says again and again, we do not have to sin. Oh, we do sin. If we say we don't sin, we're deceiving ourselves and truth isn't in us. But it says we shouldn't sin, we don't sin because we don't have to. And this is coming in line with God. So we don't wring our hands in despair and say, oh, pity me. Because we can be delivered. And here's the third one in verse 38. Jesus left the synagogue, went to the home of Simon. Simon's mother-in-law, not a hint of a joke here. And Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And she got up at once and began to wait on them. In a straightforward word of command, just the word, Jesus rebukes the fever and Simon's mother-in-law is healed. He's about to go on to tell us about this township that then is drawn by what they've heard and what they've seen of Jesus. And they can't get enough. And they come out at night and bring in the sick folk with them. It's a wonderful picture. Those of you who've been to the Holy Land will be able to visualize it even more. But just imagine the, the lights, as it were, coming on as the darkness falls and quietness falls as the, as the working day is over. And people come out of their homes and gather round Peter's home and sit on the ground. I've no idea how they did that. But I'm imagining space here. And Jesus coming and moving around. But the first story that Luke tells us is one where Jesus doesn't do anything. He just says something. The power of the word of God. It reminds us that we're not healed by trickery or jiggery-pokery, but by God. So about this healing, let's be clear that without the entrance of sin in the world, there would be no sickness or healing. So sin is responsible for all sickness and all disease. Let's be clear about that. And some sickness is the result of some particular sin. If you go to John 5, you find that Jesus heals a man at the pool there and then says, off you go and don't do any more sin. Clearly connecting the two together. But what's also clear is that some sin is definitely not the result of any particular sin. Who sinned, say his disciples to the man born blind in John 9? This man or his parents? Neither, says Jesus. Nothing to do with any particular sin. It's because the world is dysfunctional that this poor man was born sightless. But let's also say that because God has so ordained it that we as human beings, even fallen human beings, continue to have responsibility under God as stewards in the world, an obligation that God has not taken back despite the entrance of sin in the world, there should be no conflict in our mind between those healings that God accomplishes purely and simply on his own and those, God, those are healings that God accomplishes through the effect of medical personnel or anybody else. There's no dichotomy there. It's all the healing of God, whichever way he uses it, because that's the way he's made the world to be. When we were at college a long time ago, 
we joined college at the same time as another guy at the same age as us, and he had more initials after his name than I've got in my name. He was a surgeon, a highly qualified surgeon. We discussed healing at different times. At one point, with our hands deep in drains, clearing them out of muck and leaves. I find it very interesting what you can talk about when you're doing something like that. And we're discussing healing. And he says, oh, I heal nobody, Charles. I do nothing at all. I don't heal anybody. I muck about, he said. That's the word he used. I muck about. I cut them open, fiddle around, take bits out, put bits back together again, sew them up, and I stand back and I'm amazed at the healing that comes. Now, he wasn't diminishing what he did because he's a very highly qualified mucker-abouterer. And he cut people in open very carefully and worked very precisely with other, other skilled people. But it was no doubt in his mind that he was cooperating with God. And that's true of Christian doctors and non-Christian doctors. Folk we know were facing a very serious operation. The mother was facing a very serious operation and the surgeon said to her, this is a very serious operation. So obviously she's got everyone praying. You can imagine how people pray, can't you? Afterwards, and the surgeon had made no profession of faith at all. I don't know where he stands, but he made no professional indication of faith. Afterwards, he came to see the lady, told it was successful, and then he said, it was remarkable, he said. I've hardly ever performed this operation. To be honest, it was nerve-wracking for me, he said. But, and these were his words, it was as if someone had their hands on top of mine, helping me to do the right thing. Now, you know how people pray when people pray. Lord, guide the surgeon. Don't you hear people pray that? Well, he did. So it's not about, they have to be Christians. This is part of our creative heritage. We cooperate with God. So don't let something that's mucking about. Whether God does it without anyone else's intervention or with other people's intervention, it's all from God, isn't it? We don't have to exercise massive faith and say, I won't do this and I won't do that. This is all the gift of God and we praise the Lord for it. But let's not forget also that while James, the Lord's brother, says, is anyone sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Praise the Lord. Also in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is listing the ways in which these dear people have ministered to him and he says, I was sick and you, can you remember what the rest of it says? You hate it when people do this, don't you? You hate it. Your mind goes blank. It says, it doesn't say, I was sick and you healed me. It says, I was sick and you looked after me, visited me, cared for me. So let's also remember, it's not just about getting people off our prayer list. It's about ministering the love of God to people as a gift of healing. So it won't always work out in the way we want it to. Paul, a man who did, through whom God did remarkable miracles, nonetheless said this, for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in hardships, insults, in persecutions, difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So we are not to see healings as a way to a trouble-free life. They are signs that the kingdom of God is here. And that's what Luke wants to show us. The word of God speaks into this and can set us free in our bodies. On this occasion, Jesus healed with simply a word. But finally, as we come to the last few verses, 
as Jesus gets away again to spend time with his father, to lay his life on a daily basis under the authority of God, saying, Father, whatever you want, what are you doing? I want to join you in it. I'm under your authority. As he does that, people search him out because they can't get enough of this good stuff. Well, we'd be the same, wouldn't we? If you had this sort of thing happening in your, in your village, you'd be saying, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? There's more to be done. And they don't want him to leave. They try to keep him from leaving him. Here's my final point. The word of God is not under my control. I can never limit the power of the word of God. It's not for my personal private use. It is the gift of God for all. One of the words used here in this little passage is used in the Old Testament to speak of messages that cheer the hearts of the hearers. Isn't that lovely? Cheer the hearts of the hearers. Jesus says, I want to, I want to go and bring cheer to people who hear. Not just by tickling them under the chin, but bringing real hope into their lives. We cannot and must not restrict the freedom of God's word and try and keep it for ourselves as the folk at Capernaum wanted to do. The message of the kingdom is for the world. And properly declared, it's a message that brings cheer, encouragement, hope into the lives of others. Let's not hamper its effectiveness. So, here we go then. The word of God can set us free in our minds if we let it guide the way we think, address things. And I find myself constantly having to rethink the way I consider things. Reimagine. Let the word of God in. To that we have to read it, my friends. Meditate on it. Listen to it. I once was at a service, an ecumenical service, I won't tell you where it was, it was a long time ago, where the, sorry, sorry, it wasn't a service, it was a minister's fraternal, I beg your pardon. It was a group of ministers, we were at a meeting, and for some reason, people were discussing what they were preaching last Sunday, and one of the ministers said, I couldn't find anything in the newspapers to speak about. Doesn't your heart just drop on that? What is he feeding his people? Stuff from the newspapers? We've got to listen to the word of God, haven't we? Let it confront us, and then it will set us free. The truth sets us free. The word of God can set us free from the devil's control. We are not at the mercy of our genes, my friends. We're not at the mercy of our upbringing or even of our sinfulness. The word of God can set us free to live for God. And it can set us free in our bodies. It can set us free in our bodies. So let me pause here and give us a moment just to reflect. And let the word of God in. And Father, I want to say, I for one, and there may be others here this morning, hopefully all of us, Lord, want to be those who are entirely submitted to your authority in our lives. You are Lord. And we are your servants. Oh, you're our father and we're your children. We rejoice in that. But at the same time, you are the king and we are our, your subjects. 
And we want to be under your authority, Lord. Not as cringing slaves, but as honoured servants. Because, Lord, we want to see the world the way you see it. Understand the world the way you see it. We want your word to help us to think in a Christian kind of way. Addressing all the things this week. Lord, so I want to pray that as we come under your authority, as you graciously fill us with your spirit, that your word will dwell in us richly and result in all sorts of good things coming out of our mouths because of the good stored up in our hearts from the word of God. I want to pray, Lord, for any of us here who may feel constricted, restricted, under the authority of the devil. Lord, set us free. Set us free this week to love you and to serve you. To pay no attention to the devil and any claim he may have for authority over our lives. For he has none, Lord. You are our Lord and we have no other. We have been rescued from his dominion and put in your kingdom. We would want to be in no other place. As we live this week, Lord, we ask that you will help us to live as children of the King, free ambassadors of God. And Father, it could be here also that one or two are constrained by physical restrictions. Lord, we don't tell you what to do. You are God and we are not. So it would be presumptuous of us in the extreme, to tell you what to do. But in faith, Lord, we come before you and say, let your purposes be worked out in every one of our lives in ways that bring you pleasure and joy and enable us fully to serve you. Let our weakness, Lord, not be a hindrance or frustration for us, but an opportunity for your strength to be manifest even more in our lives. If that's what it takes, Lord, then we are happy to be weak, that you may be demonstrably strong, powerful, kingly, authoritative in every way. So, Lord, as we enter this coming week and engage with all the affairs of life, which are our responsibility, let us do so in the confident knowledge that filled with your spirit and filled with your word, We may live to your glory and praise. For Jesus' sake. Amen.